0: A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. Yeah, that's right. Right. So we're we're getting ahead of ourselves in the timeline, but you know, around nineteen seventy is when Sasakawa takes a step back from his strident anti-communist stuff. And he starts chilling out and saying, I'm going into a new phase of my career where I'm going to be like the, I'm going to buy my way into a Nobel Peace Prize and become this global philanthropist and stuff. And he's working with kind of your Rockefeller, you know, Anglo Yankee New World Order kind of types, trilateral commission, stuff like that. But by that point, the Moonies are able to stand on their own and spin off, but he's, he's working it from both sides. I'm telling you, He's a hero of Japan, whether anybody likes it or not. Um, if you're Japan, that is skillful. That's good worldwide statesmanship on his part. Sorry to have to be the one to say it, but
1: <laughs> smart. We're we're sauce. Are we are we standing in now? <laughs>
0: no, I'm just trying not to be so one sided about everything, you know, because it's, it's you know the world is complicated, full of nuance and. You find yourself in history and you're caught up in the gears of it and yeah it's easy for us to say well he's just a japanese war criminal and that's it the end But it's like yeah it's actually more complicated than that so but we but, you know i have more i could talk about with all the movies and, and like asian people's anti-comics and world anti-comics all that kind of stuff but i feel like i've gotten us ahead hmm. and we didn't we, we skipped over the the 1955 system. Stuff. Yeah. I don't know if that's... If we should go back or not. But.
1: I think it was good to talk about it, and then I guess we can circle back to the Moonies. Now, I always got to do a beverage check. What are you drinking? A
0: big old bottle of water.
1: Oh, see? Better than me. I'm blasting Diet Coke.
0: Uh, yeah, that'll be later. My other <laughs> bites
1: today. No, I mean... I think that's good, though, because, like, I think someone needs to, like, make a fair case for Sasakawa, because I'm definitely (laughs) always in the camp of, like, (laughs) talking about (laughs) uh, people uh, perhaps a little bit too implying that they're too irredeemable. And yeah, you're, like, you're right, though, because that's the thing. It kind of reminds me of, I, I forget which maybe stokely carmichael or something said that like if you stab me in the back 9 inches and pull it out 6 like <laughs> am i supposed to thank you for that but like uh-huh. the thing is you literally didn't have to pull it out though so it's like well there is an argument to be made right
0: yeah yeah uh, I, you know i i, I don't want to carry water too much for the guy I'm just I, I have uh, listened to and I went back and re-listened to the first episode and, I, and I'll just drop this for your listeners that you really want to do a deep dive on the history of military history of World War II in the Pacific. Uh, I highly recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, uh, his series Supernova in the first episode of this is like from zero, you know, ancient Japan all the way up to the Shanghai massacre of 37, 39, or whatever it was when they when they went into Japan, you know, or went into China. I mean. Um but the the history of it uh you know leading up to the empire, uh basically it was you know, they realized we either need to become, we either need to colonize or be colonized. Yeah. And we've been in cloistered for 200 years and the world is passing us by. And do you really want to be like the Philippines? Do you really want to look what they just did to China? The opium war really opened Japan's eyes. They saw China, China's center of the universe, culturally, whatever. And, here come these white barbarians and they laid the mother of civilization low. Holy crap, we could be next. You know, and then you get 1854 and Commodore Perry done about diplomacy, literally forcing them open at gunpoint and it becomes this crash program get the emperor back, change Buddhism <laughs> to fit, you know, and do a software upgrade of our entire culture. And change the way everybody in Japan thinks and acts, and turn ourselves
1: industrialized in. rapidly. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and it's this race against the the West, and um, you know, oh. Oh, they bro- like I said, they broke a lot of eggs making that omelet. They they learned from the best. Mm-hmm. You know, the the horrors of the Japanese Empire and all the stuff they did, and the Opium Wars and all that stuff. it it really wasn't that out of sorts with a lot of what the rest of the world was doing um yeah so so if you're a sasakawa and that's the world that you're born into and you realize that this japanese national imperative is to become a world power or become a colony and it's not going to be pretty guys but we got to do it and You know, looking at the broad, trying to look in geological, historical, grand terms of Japan, guys like Sasakawa did his nation some really big favors. And if you're right up close to it, it looks really ugly. But if you zoom out, give it 200 years, and you know, the statues of him carrying his mother might
1: still be there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. Because, like, you could make A very solid case also that he was, well, you can make a case that he was helping Japan, but you could also make a case that he was just selling Japan out to the Americans. Right? I mean, there's a case to be made for both, I think.
0: I I suppose so. I'm looking at two books right now. Yeah. And one of them is called An Occupation Without Truths, Wall Street's Half-Century Domination of Japanese Politics. And then right next to it, I have another book called *Agents of Influence: How Japan Manipulates America's Political and Economic System*. (laughs) So, so which is it? You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's a two-way street. So, by by the eighties, I mean we're really getting too far here. So I I can back off and talk about it, but like, there was a lot of serious uh, panic in the United States about the influence of Japan.
1: The whole Die Hard movie, for example.
0: Yeah, or uh, there was some movie about uh, American automakers and uh, the Japanese buy it up. I can't remember the name of the people Keaton in it. Yeah, Made in America maybe is the name.
1: I think so, because the Japanese buy the auto factory, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So you know, so who's colonizing who by the eighties? You, you know what I mean?
1: Exactly. No, I mean, I think we should, should, what do you think? Should we talk about the 1955 system or the Japan lobby? Isn't it the same thing? (laughs) Hey, (laughs) well, okay, maybe maybe real quick before both of those, we can just go over a little bit of what Sasakawa was up to in terms of the Yakuza side of things. So he basically... Like you said, he took his patriotic people's mass party and he turned it into, again, different ways of translating it, but like the all-Japan white-collar workers' league. <laughs> I saw one way of translating it. Um, like you said, he founded Wackle. Um, uh, he got in with the Moonies, of course. Um, you know, people say he founded Wackle, and, I, and there's, I think it's
0: way too pat of a way of putting it. But he was definitely up in the mix, and he definitely did help the the Unification Church get started in Japan. He definitely helped get Japan's first uh, world anti-communist League chapter sure. together in the sixties, which was a moon political front. It's like Sashikawa did wackles. Like I've seen that said, and it's like eh, yeah, it's a little complicated.
1: Now. Though, I will ask you this. Do you think that he ponied up the most money for Wackle? Like, any one guy?
0: Um, I I would speculate that if any one person would be responsible for making the largest single contribution, he would have to be the guy you'd be looking at to fill that bill. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, they... All of those groups were aggressive fundraisers in their own right. I think some of their benefactors maybe gave them seed money and said, all right, here it is. You're now up and running. You, you've got this many years to get stood up on your own because I'm not going to do this forever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But largest single checkbook, Sasakawa, chances are real good. You know, if there's somebody else out there that made a bigger contribution, maybe we should be talking about that guy instead of (laughs) Sasakawa.
1: Yeah. Um, So Sasakawa, there's a quote uh, where he's describing sort of like this 1950s uh, right wing milieu where he said, Formerly I had Godama and many other roughnecks around me. I was their leader. So some may call me a rightist. But I am not a rightist. I am a humanitarian. Now he was saying that I think in the latter end of his life when he was trying to rehabilitate his image, but Sasakawa was chairman of some like 30 right-wing organizations. And he talked occasionally about having a private army of 8 million ready to strike against leftists for the fatherland, quote unquote.
0: Did he really sleep with five hundred women?
1: <laughs> did
0: he really have? Did he really have eight million people in his private army? You know, or is this Washington chopping down the cherry tree? I, I don't know.
1: Right, and it's like, do you really want to call it eight million when there's just like you're counting every single gangster in all of Japan? But at the same time, he kind of did have that position in the underworld, so kind of, yeah. Yeah.
0: The what was it called? Zen Aikai Kaigi, the all Japan Federation of Patriotic Societies or whatever gets going in the 50s. And that was basically
2: Mm -hmm.
0: uh Kodama as the great peacemaker between all the different, you know, uh factions of the Yakuza. And basically he was like, We gotta not fight each other. We need to save all of our strength for the event of a communist takeover. And that's when it's time for us to shed blood, not before. But it's not fighting for ourselves. The communists. So, you know, if you look at it from that standpoint, the, what was it called? But like in the Yakuza book, they said that uh, it was sometimes referred to as the Yakuza because that's really what it was,
1: (laughs) you know? And I think it, like the cops classified it as like an organized crime group at one point.
0: One example of where you can see that 8 million strong army or whatever, um, maybe, maybe it's exaggerated, but they nevertheless flexed their muscles in a big way uh, in 1960 when Kishi was trying to renegotiate the treaty. United States and there were massive protests because it was I can't remember exactly what the terms of it were but yes the United States can station nuclear weapons in Japan it's not a good sell for regular Japanese people and uh, we're still going to have bases you know marines and whatever in Okinawa and you know other kind of things like that that, uh, that the left in Japan was uh, very against you know, this is the bad old days. We don't want all of this. We certainly don't want nukes in our country, guys. And uh, at, the, at that time in the late 50s, Kishi was the prime minister, and he staked his political future on getting that, that new uh, mutual security treaty passed. Mm-hmm. And there were massive, massive demonstrations to shut down the diet. Ah, uh, these protesters uh, at one point had sort of overrun Douglas MacArthur II's motorcade, uh, and they had to be evacuated by helicopter because they were surrounded by these student protesters. And um, Kodama and the bo- rounded up the boys, and I think they had something like twenty thousand, you know, just everything from street thugs to uh, you know, food vendors and working class guys who were ready to get a billy club and go into action for the fatherland and uh to to uh to, to become like a rapid reaction force in case things went bad as they were anticipated to be when eisenhower was scheduled to make a state visit to japan and the protests were so bad that ike wound up calling off the visit because uh, they were afraid. And Jim Hogan in his book, Spooks, which is one of my sources, uh, he said the Americans looked at the situation in Japan at the time and said this has all the makings of a, of a massacre. And so they called it off. But treaty wound up being passed and Kishi wound up um, being deposed in the next election or resigning. I can't remember exactly what, but like he, he got the football over the goal line and was like, all right, that's all I get to do. I'm out. I'll just go back to being a behind the scenes yeah. power broker.
1: <laughs> no, seriously. Like Eisenhower's visit, they he didn't end up going, but they still mobilized like 28,000 Yakuza on the streets and like No, like they really did have like a massive like underworld army. Yeah, certainly not 8 million, but like <laughs> but certainly enough. Exactly. Just yeah. staggering.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, imagine the mob doing that here. Like, like, <laughs> it just, it, you know, we're talking about how unique the organized crime is. It's like, is it even crime? Like,
1: yeah, exactly. It's just part of the landscape.
0: Yeah. So he had a big army, he had access to some resources in, in that way. The Zen Act, whatever you call it.
1: So I guess it's probably best to look at the 1955 system when we talk about all three of the three amigos right like we're talking kodama kishi sasakawa the the gangster the politician kingmaker maybe and the uh the financier right yeah yeah now (laughs) how would you describe the 1955 system it just like at like a bird's eye view basically
0: you know, just really quickly, uh, the, it's basically the one-party state that ruled Japan from the fifties to, I think, the nineties. Yeah. So there you go. Occupation without troops. This would this would be the occupiers' uh,
1: the political system, you know,
0: the puppet state that becomes the puppeteer by the eighties and nineties.
1: <laughs> yeah, like fundamentally, the method by which the liberal democratic party maintains control, right? Well, I guess maybe here's a good way of talking about it. So Nobusuke Kishi, Kishe, the um, one of the three amigos, like we said, he was in Manchukuo, right? right? And it's in Manchuria where he learned about how to launder dirty money into the political system. And he brought that, of course, right back to Japanese domestic politics in a big way. So, Kishi like has this quote where he says, political funds should be accepted only after they have passed through a filter and have been cleansed. If a problem arises, the filter will then be, become the center of the affair, while the politician who has consumed the clean water will not be implicated political funds become the basis of corruption scandals only when they have not been sufficiently filtered
0: tldr just say money laundering bro yeah (laughs) you're mansplaining money laundering man just just say it
1: (laughs) yeah no i mean i've i don't think i've ever seen someone spell it out as clearly as that like right but he did he he spelled it out like
0: here's how this works guys
1: (laughs) (laughs) you really do get the impression that he was like almost like talking to children which in some ways talking to like politicians probably is (laughs) yeah but basically kishi basically placed himself at the center of laundering dirty money into the political system
0: and kodama was a big part of that so you know Nineteen fifty-eight, he starts his uh, relationship as, as Lockheed and/or the CIA's uh, little special agent <laughs> uh, for for making sure Lockheed gets the contracts for rearming Japan's air force. It's like the Kodama agency gets revived or something.
1: Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, no, because like Kodama was, I guess you could say, more downstream in terms of like getting the dirty money and then kishi was maybe like the guy dispersing it to different politicians or organizing that system and then sasakawa was somewhere in the middle right where he probably had the money and was like helping launder it to hand to kishi i guess you could say
0: yeah or just doing other special projects uh and intervening only when necessary. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who the who the heck knows that the degree to which Sasakawa was involved directly in any of that stuff. Once again, just like with the movies you help create it, you get it on its feet, you make sure it has a way to be financially sustainable, and then you don't have to mess with it anymore. You go on to the next thing and it can it can
1: just do its thing on its own. Exactly. And so like Kishi and sasakawa <clears throat> both were constantly associated with like different political scandals, but they were like the Teflon dons, man. They never went down for anything. So Kishi was instrumental in creating the liberal democratic party in the first place. There's like a whole bureaucratic history of like merging two other parties together into the liberal democratic party. But yeah, like you said, he basically became prime minister (laughs) and Basically, between 1955 and when he resigned as minister, there were 14 separate corruption cases involving his party and his government, and he was never once named like uh, in the prosecutor's cases. Like <laughs> but like the public knew, people, everyone knew it was like Kishi's system, but he would never be formally indicted.
0: It's amazing. It sounded like the washing machine wasn't working very well.
1: (laughs) It's one of those old washing machines that like shakes a whole bunch. But like like you said, there was like several really high profile cases. There was the Lockheed case, which correct me if I'm wrong. That's the one where a Japanese porn star basically crashed an airplane into the house of Kodama. Correct?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and not for... Uh, all of his dirty dealings over the previous 20 years as Lockheed's special agent in Japan, but more for getting caught and therefore besmirching the honor of <laughs> J- Japan in and, and its right wing. Which is just crazy. Like, yeah. you know what, I mean, er, if, like you said, everybody knew what was going on for a long time, so how come... What, what's the timing on the, the Kamikaze attack on Kodama's, you know, mansion or whatever. It's it's not when he's rolling in it. It's when he gets caught. That now it's time to crash.
1: It's certainly fuel for thought. Well, what's crazy too is that w- there wasn't just the Lockheed like scandal, but there was also what was it like the Grumman scandal, which is like somewhat less known to Westerners, but like it was a very similar case. Yeah. Um, but that kind of got more quieted up because it was more associated with the Japan lobby, right? I, I think so. I'm, I'm not as
0: familiar with the Grumman scandal, but I know it was another big one that popped in the 70s. Yeah,
1: like a lot of things popped in the 70s. There was the Indonesian kickback problem in 1959. <laughs> like, that's the thing if Japan was receiving all of receiving funds from the United States and then filtering them back to the United States. That's what Japan was doing to like other countries in East Asia as well, especially Indonesia, where they had this system where they would, they were, I think, ordered to pay reparations uh, back to several countries, not China, I'm pretty sure, but they were giving reparations back to Indonesia. But the way I think MacArthur's, occupation structured it they made it so that the Japanese could give either money or goods (laughs) and so I think I was reading about how Kishi, Kodama, and Sasakawa would structure it so that they would basically construct ships make sure that they made a profit making the ships give those ships to Indonesia count that as reparations The ships would often be like subpar quality and then that's helping like them make profit and it's helping wipe off the reparations off the books of japan and at the end of the day indonesia just gets like these shitty like (laughs) sailboats
0: yeah if you take the the war reparations uh piece out of it you know it kind of rhymes with oh we just destroyed iraq who's going to rebuild it how about Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton. hey, you guys aren't doing anything, but how about we give you the contract for it?
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Sasakawa was uh, involved with uh, uh, Sukarno. I think Mm -hmm. he had said somewhere that he helped him uh, find a Japanese wife. You know, he was on really good terms with them, but Sasakawa, I I got on pretty good authority. He uh, He helped fund the coup against uh, Sukarno in '65. Interesting. I don't remember which which book I read this in, but he also the 1970 coup in uh, I think it was Cambodia. He was that one's a little more shaky that he was maybe involved in. But you know, one of these things that we haven't really talked about uh, yet that that deals with this whole period uh, from from the. The reverse course to the 1955 system to let's say vietnam war okay these uh american wall street occupiers are basically like okay so we're gonna get japan rebuilt and developed and their industrial capacity that was miraculously saved uh world war ii is now going to be you know put towards uh, peaceful things and manufacturing electronics and making godzilla movies and whatever and uh, the problem with that is you're going to create this giant, you need markets for those goods that are going to be produced. And so American planners are like, you know, really the only way we're going to make this happen is we got to get, we got to revive the greater East and greater Asian co-prosperity sphere. That was the whole <laughs> idea behind the Japanese empire in the first place. Yeah. So, so these deals, like you're talking about, when he, I believe it was Kishi had done this apology tour around the time that these reparations deals that you're describing is getting going. And by the way, they're they're being organized and taking place through the auspices of Moral Rearmament. You know, very important thing. I keep bringing up MRA, but like he's literally doing an apology tour and helping reestablish economic cooperation between. Uh, these countries that Japan had looted and slaughtered and fertilized uh, in decades prior. And it's MRA methodology that's being employed for that. But yeah. Interesting. But after the 1965 coup in Indonesia, it's opened up to Japanese markets, you know. Um, after the Korean War is over and they start getting uh, cooperation again after the Sigmund Re-government uh, Ri's government falls, and around 1960, um, you know, it kind of paves the way for a renewal of, of diplomatic and economic relations between Japan and Korea. And so they start helping rebuild Korea, and all of these markets now that they had originally wanted in their empire building, now they get them back and it's the united states that's the providing the muscle it's amazing
1: yeah it uh rather reminds me of germany ending up getting so many of the things that they wanted in the first place after world war ii doesn't it though (laughs)
0: Mm. you know I, i heard somewhere uh that i think it was dave emery had said the United States joined the Axis at the very, very end of World War II. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a hell of a way to put it, but you know, uh, and another thing I heard from uh, from Dave Emery, and he, I think he was quoting someone else. I'm a big Dave Emery fan from way right back. Oh, so yeah. Don't like that, but I I love that guy. Another cranky, cranky old pessimist, just like I'm turning into. Um
1: Curmudgeon. <laughs>
0: Permudgeon, there you go. Uh, it's a good thing that the good guys won World War II. Otherwise, we would all be driving Mitsubishis and Toyotas and getting bossed around by guys named Wolfowitz and uh, Rumsfeld. <laughs> I thought that was gold, golden, man. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Rebuilding the age of the prosperity sphere, the economic side of the japanese empire it came back under american protection (laughs) and japan definitely was a winner of the vietnam war in terms of their economy Uh, (laughs) you know they they helped out a lot
1: yeah oh man (laughs) (laughs) i guess we're sort of like through the 50s
0: you know, to an extent, the 1955 system, just like a lot of these other little side tangents we're going off of, I've tried to keep the North Star as being we're talking about Sasakawa. He's the turkey on the table. Then you've got your mashed potatoes and your green beans, but it's all about the turkey. So, <laughs> so if you want to talk about the 60s, I've, I've got uh, you know plenty.
1: Yeah, no, let's do it.
0: So, you know, and not, I, I, in 1960, uh, you get. Operation Protect Ike that we talked about with Kodama getting gangs back together. I talked about the Sukarno coup in Indonesia. Um, Six months later, here comes a big foreign aid package to the new Suharto regime. Um, In 1963, Sasakawa becomes an advisor to the Japanese Unification Church. And just dipping back into the very late 50s, just for a minute, around -hmm. the late 50s, 1958, is when you get a little thing called Taekwondo coming onto the scene. (laughs) Yeah. You had talked in your latest episode on uh, the Inouye guy. I just listened to that yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. And you're talking about can martial arts uh, organizations and dojos become intelligence friends? Oh, yes, they can. (laughs) Um, So in the late 50s, you get uh, Sasakawa helping establish this um, Japanese uh, karate federation. You know,
2: yeah. Uh,
0: and then you've got Bohi Pak, which is Bohi Pak was uh, the Reverend Moon's like chief lieutenant. He was the United St- He was the military attaché in the United States in the sixties. And he was a KCIA guy. And he was the guy, if you ever see videos of Moon, and he is talking in Korean in his bombastic way. And he's got this guy that's like, so with spectacles on, and he's like translating for him. That's Bohi Pak.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But his, anyway, Bohi Pak's cousin is a man named Jun Ri, who is regarded as the father of worldwide Taekwondo. <laughs> and the early Taekwondo in the United States was a mooning front, and Jun Ri was in the movies until 1965. He's um, basically like, they're not going to let me marry who I want to marry. You know, I'm out. And there was a lot of weird stuff going on with the Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation, which, you know, both epoch and then started as a, a kind of a Korean lobby. that would later get implicated in creating a single effect later. But... Uh, In the uh, sixties, Sasakawa is—he's always funding these patriotic organizations and things like that. So martial arts is, you know, a long and storied history in Japan, and so he sort of gets the Japanese uh, Karate Federation together and takes it worldwide. By the end of the decade, it's the World Karate Federation. Nineteen seventy.
1: Let me let me ask you something here with that because that's very interesting to me because like taekwondo in some ways was a modern invention like dating from this period right obviously there was like a history of techniques going back further but like could you make an argument that they were essentially seeing the karate model and then basically packaging their own version of it could like could you make that argument i'm just i'm wondering because i don't know for sure I could
0: probably make the argument and be way in over my head uh, really quickly because there's people probably you're going to listen to this that could probably correct me as soon as I start talking on it. I will say this years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I swear, I swear, I swear. The first time I ever heard Ryoichi Sasakawa's name, I yeah. used to, I used to do karate with my kids back when I was like young and skinny, right? And uh, and and the 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 sensei. Uh, really good guy, really nice guy, but he, there was a place of honor in the dojo. And there's a picture of Ryoichi Sasakawa. He's the father of world, the world karate federation and karate in the United States, as we know, it wouldn't exist without this guy right here. He's got the incense burning. Uh, and, and that occupied the place of honor in my dojo and It's Sasakawa years later, I read inside the league and that's where I'm like, where have I heard that? And then it gets to the part about the karate. Oh man! Okay.
1: Wow. (laughs) Because, like, I was just thinking. I was like, okay, karate and taekwondo. Not to be smirched, like, people who really practice it and everything, but like, at the end of the day, it mainly functions as like a thing kids do, and it like, it's in strip malls, and it basically like, (laughs) is kind of a scam, right? kind of fits in with like i don't like how i'm trying to like it sort of fits in with like japanese and korean soft like cultural power like
0: private diplomacy tool. yeah
1: but it's also fundamentally kind of just a scam on people so it's just like i don't like
0: i don't know i was in karate for a couple of years i didn't feel like it was a
1: scam okay well that's 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 good
0: but I'm sure dedicated I'm sure okay. practitioners and senseis would probably push back with remarkable martial skill and force on <laughs> such a, an, and I'm not trying to get my ass kicked uh, once this podcast gets out. So I'm just going to take a bow and uh, tell you that there's a website called akillingart.com mm-hmm. that has an entry about the early Moonies and Junrye and the early Taekwondo federation in the United States being a Mooney recruiting front.
1: <laughs> recruiting.
0: And that's what, Yeah, and I'll leave it at that. But uh, so another side dish on the whole Sasakawa train is the importation of martial arts like karate to the United States and around the world. It's that's, that also is a part of this man's history. So I. Uh, wanted to bring that up when we're talking about the
1: 60s no but like that just underscores like literally every aspect of like japanese like society and japanese history for like a hundred years like his fingerprints are all over everything
0: yeah 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 so and 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 the reason why besides the karate thing uh the reason why i knew about sasakawa is from doing research on the world anti League. And uh as we had said before, he was part of some international commons league in the 30s, which I didn't even know existed, but good to know. Um but he was instrumental in building up uh the World any Commons League. I, I think like I said, the idea that he just bankrolled it is way too simple, but he was definitely in the mix. And when literally at one of his uh motorboat racing courses. At the base of Mount Fuji, in the mid '60s, he gets the he gets this whole group together, uh, and they form the Mooney chapter of Wackel, soon to be chapter of, of you know World Anti-Communist League, the Japanese national chapter of that worldwide organization, it was called the International Federation for Victory over Communist. in Korea. <laughs> It was called the International Federation for the Extermination of Communists, <laughs> and so the Japanese are like, "Look, I'm with you, but can we just dial it down a little bit. Victory over communism, okay." Uh, in the United States, the the uh, sister organization is called the Freedom Leadership Foundation, uh, because the, the American PR guys are like, "You guys got to chill, you know, with this." Um, <laughs> But but this was organized at, you know, the meeting founding it was organized at at one of Sasakawa's racing courses. Um, And it had, there was a guy named Osami Kuboki Yeah. uh, That was a member of the Risho Kosakai Buddhist sect, which was itself kind of derived from the what's the what's the, the, the nationalist Buddhist group that you talked about before.
1: Was it the Nichiren?
0: Yes, uh derived from Nichiren Buddhism is kosakai Buddhism. Mm. And so this guy Osami Kuboki is talked about as being in line to become the leader of this sect when the when the guy that was running you know Founder of it was going to pass away in line to be. Instead, he and apparently 50 other leaders, they say, in the Risho Kosakai Buddhist sect, they all do a
1: mass conversion to the unification church. See, like, that's the thing. When a bunch of leaders of a church all switch, that's not like selling out that's like buying in like that's like investing in this new thing yeah
0: so in the room is yoshio kadama Ryoichi sasakawa the allegedly reverend sun young moon and osami kaboki um they just convert to what was called jinri undos japanese word for their unification church and there's a guy named shirai tameo from a group called japan youth lectures Who is also a Kodama lieutenant is there, and the result is the victory over communism group. Um, In in Jim Hogan's book, he called it "win over communism," but you know, so it has different depending on where you are. But uh, it it was a Mooney front, and uh, Shokyo Ringo, I'm going to call it, uh, would actually was very uh, tied in with the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party providing uh, campaign workers and volunteers for Liberal Democratic Party candidates for office, uh, did a lot of aggressive fundraising. Um, and there's a guy, Richard Samuels, wrote a book called Machiavelli's Children, uh, where he says that uh, Shokyo rengo would become one of the quote, most widely reviled groups in contemporary Japan. Uh, and, and and there were multiple reasons for that they would try to get people to buy like heavily marked up votary stuff like cer- ceramics and like fine reinforcecelain and stoneware to the old ladies in Japan for example um, almost like some senior scam kind of thing you know
1: this was, this, was- this this all sounds so much like the LaRouche organization to me I mean except with the religious element mixed in
0: yeah well you know, one source said something about, you know, they had the muscle of the mob, the religious devotion of the, of the Moonies, you know, powerful Packers in the LDP. Mm-hmm. It was like a new tool in the toolkit. Um, and so in, the, in this context of, of the Mooney whole thing, I'll read you a quote from a guy, Alan Tate Wood. Uh, it's a big American Moonie. He wrote a book called
1: Moonstruck. <laughs> what a title.
0: Yeah, the moon, the puns, man. You know, moon is eclipsed, moon this, moon that. Um,
1: yeah, so
0: he he wrote a memoir called Moonstruck, and in one of his interviews that I found online, I originally started trying to look this guy up and he's naming, and then I realized later, it says at the top, they changed the names to protect, maybe not the innocent or the guilty, but maybe probably protect Alan Tate Wood.
1: Yeah, um
0: Yeah, so I'll just read it. Quote, Uh, it was through this witnessing process that could that that we could understand how deeply appealing Moon was to Japan's reactionaries. What better way to tell it than through Arima Katayama, which is absolutely he's talking about Ryoichi Sasakawa. Okay. (laughs) So I'm gonna call him. One of one of us One of Osami Kuboki's close connections, okay, so uh, Sasakawa, he says, now in his 70s, was a World War II fanatic, an architect of the Kamikaze program, who had a role in the Hitler-Tojo pact, and a war criminal who had done time. He was now the unofficial head of Japan's right wing. It would be wrong to say he was a follower of Moon, but he clearly admired the devoted core which Moon had raised. In his peculiar way, Sasakawa considered himself Moon's friend. This militant old Japanese, who looked as if he could unsheath a samurai sword, cut you in five pieces, and then resheath his blade all in two seconds, put it his own way. Quote, I am Moon's dog, he told a group of Moon's followers. I was coming to understand what a strange, to what a strange extent subservience was a part of the fierce Japanese character. End quote. And what he's talking about, this subservience is probably the wrong way, word for it. In the Yakuza book, they call it giri. Mm-hmm. And it's this sort of karmic system of I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. Your, your favors that you do for other people become like a kind of karmic currency. You know, the end, the end result of maximum giri is that you serve someone so hard until they owe you so much that by serving them, you come to own them yeah and and that's what moon did exactly that uh when he brought his people to the united states he'd have these uh cute korean and japanese girls going and volunteering to work in congressman offices oh you know do you need your floor swept or can i go get you some coffee or (laughs) (laughs) can i plant this can i plant this listening device in here you know (laughs) i i know a lady with a massage parlor if you need a little special you know uh yeah, so, uh, so back to Sasakawa, though, um, and the, the World Anti-Communist League connection. He presided... Okay, so Sasakawa is like the unofficial head of the Unification Church in Japan, yeah. along with a couple of other guys I mentioned. Sasakawa provide, presided uh, over the, the biggest World Anti-Communist League product, conference they ever had in their history and this was in Tokyo in 1970 and he gave the keynote speech and I have it from the David Nelson Rao papers from Hoover uh institution but it's quoted he's quoted in Inside the League as well but um here's what he said in his speech and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing um I know some of these radical leftists are here with us in this very room as infiltrators right now. And I want you to know, I don't have any ill will towards you because after all, you have a disease and you can't help it. But me, I'm the doctor and I have the cure and I'd rather help you, but if the patient won't submit to my treatment, I have stronger treatments as well if I have to use them. Ooh. So here, there's some just threatening the whole auditorium <laughs> with people. And Don Diligent told me that Moon had cribbed that line and used, basically stole Sasakawa's line and was telling Americans that very same shtick a year or two later in the United States. That's one interesting thing about Moon and Sasakawa. Another interesting thing about Moon and Sasakawa is there's sort of was a famous picture uh, that was used in like, building up Moon's image as this great humanitarian (laughs) uh, where it's supposed to be uh, when he's in like a North Korean prison camp in the 40s or 50s or whatever and he's, he's trying to escape and one of his people that's in prison with him doesn't have any shoes and it's cold and so Moon, there's this painting, it's like an illustration it's very well done and it's Moon carrying the guy on its back to safety and it is just like the statue of Sasak- Sasakawa in his mother.
1: Interesting.
0: And it's like a famous, iconic picture of the, in, in the Mooney kind of universe. Yeah.
1: So who copied who?
0: Uh, I, no, I would say Moon copied Sasakawa. No, yeah, yeah. Sasakawa, Sasakawa didn't copy shit. He, he's like... <laughs> a, a, I, I, I'm, I'm almost becoming a, a grudging fan of the guy just reading Yeah, no, no, but but the the Moody's, I mean, they cribbed a bunch of stuff from moral rearmament, for example. You know, they weren't, they were derivative.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's like what cults do, right? They basically come up with a couple (laughs) new things and mostly copy everything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. The Unification Church was derivative rather than, you know, I mean, everything, a lot of the stuff is downstream from Sasaka, right? So the Moody's, we got to put in that same category, just like, you know, karate. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, yeah. um, so no, it's moon copying Sasakawa, stealing his lines, stealing
1: his iconic yeah. image. You know, yeah, interesting. Well, okay, I saw this too. Like, is Shokyo Ringo? You said that was the more or less the name of the the Moonies in Japan.
0: That was uh, Federation for Victory over Communism. Is oh, Shokyo Ringo? Gotcha. Okay. Jinri Undo is the unification church. That's but right. But their, their political arm is victory over communism. Show here.
1: Now, I saw this too that uh, the the Mooney Church, their headquarters was on land that was owned by Kishi. <laughs> yeah, i heard that. Man, it's just like all tied together, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kishi loved the Moonies
0: as well they you were know, good, cheap labor for, for politicians.
1: Yeah, I saw something about, like, he said, like, if all younger people were like Shokyo Ringo, Japan would have a bright future. (laughs) Very interesting.
0: Yeah, but, you know, if if we're almost going to move into the 70s here, which Mm -hmm. maybe we should, um, I'll just say that 1970 in the World Economic Conference in Tokyo was kind of like the peak for Sasakawa's out-in-the-open out uh, funding and sponsorship of these right-wing organizations, these international ones like Black Bull. You know, he gets his Karate federa- Federation going in 1970, and he's taking a turn towards becoming the humanitarian powerhouse and philanthropic yeah. you know, juggernaut that, that he becomes from the 70s. To the '90s, and by that time, like like I said, the Moonies, it's like, all right, you're bilking old ladies out of money for porcelain and whatever, and um, I'm gonna move on and do the next thing. Now I'm gonna go work on the Rockefeller guy somewhere or whatever. Uh, You know, there was newspaper stories in the '70s describing Moon as a seafood magnate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like in the early days, you know. Um, He went on to. Defense contracting like is Tong Il, which means unification. Uh, Tong Il Industries got the contracts from like, Remington or Colt to like manufacture M16s for GIs in the Vietnam
1: era. Oh, and two things with that because like I heard that like the M16s initially in Vietnam were like super shitty, <laughs> like a lot of them wouldn't work very well. Huh. Um, and it was like some pork barrel reasons, but also probably because of aspects of that. But then also, isn't there that Mooney offshoot that's like a literally like a gun cult? I thought I saw.
0: Yeah, the, the Rod of Iron Ministries. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Which kind of teamed up, teamed up with Bannon and went their stage and their prestige or whatever. And they apparently recently bought a compound in Waco for Patriots. <laughs> I heard this. I I, I haven't really studied the the current iteration of of the unification church as much as the historical, but yeah, they're, they're still around.
1: Fool me once shame on me.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so by the seventies, you know, moon is getting into the ginseng business and he's got guys like Don diligent, hawking peanut brittle on the streets for like 16 hours a day in the United States, just, just sucking up all kinds of money. Yeah. And Japan to this day is like the main that's even though it's this Korean guy, uh Moon got most of his money from from Japan. Yeah. And he even said so, you know. So it's more important, I think, to think of the Unification Church as a Japanese thing rather than a Korean thing. I don't want to discount the Korean aspect, but it's the, the Japanese really made the most use of that toolkit.
1: Yeah, and like you're right that like people when they talk about the Moonies, they don't consider the Japanese aspect for sure. Because it was buried, you know, mm-hmm. pretty pretty That's, successfully. And then also, wasn't there because of the seafood angle, wasn't there a whole Moonies angle to sushi restaurants in the United States?
0: You know, I had sushi for dinner last night. It was really great. Um <laughs> Uh, isn't it something? The big uh, Japan uh, shipping, what was the name of it? The, the motorboat racing thing became the J- Japanese International Shipping Federation, or I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what's funny? My, my wife, when uh, I was getting into all this Mooney stuff, she hears me talk about this podcast, and she actually had heard of the Moonies before. And I'm like, well, where? You know, this this is obscure stuff. It shouldn't be, but it is. When she was younger, uh, she had a boyfriend back in like I don't know, the 90s or something. That had that, that, that worked doing seasonal fishing, working on fishing boats in Alaska. And her boyfriend would come back from the season in the boat and talk about these these Moonies coming and muscling in on the on the fishing in Alaska. Really? Isn't that something? Um, there was a uh, in, in uh, like New England, like uh, Connecticut or Maine or whatever, there was also some, some, uh, some of the same kind of stuff where they, they bought a shipping or a fishing fleet over there and had sort of, you know, moved into a monopoly position over some local fisheries in the New England area in the 70s. And by the 80s, you know, uh, sushi becomes like a household name in the United States. And last year, there was a very, very well-done, slick story, deep dive in the New York Times that really gets into the history of sushi as a thing in the U.S. And the whole thing, the whole story is really about it being a moon yen for us. <laughs> like, like, for real, there's like at least a 50-50 chance, man, if you eat some sushi, some portion of your bill, you know, either for the business itself or the fish that they bought, what Was it called, Happy Family or... I can't remember what the name of the, the big Mooney seafood company was, but they really had a, a huge effect on bringing sushi to the United States. Now there's there's a fundraising mechanism, right? It's like the yeah. own restaurants.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny too because like a couple of years ago, I mean, my wife has been learning Japanese for a while, and like we would, you know, go to you know, you know like get sushi now and again in this particular city we lived in at the time and we eventually figured out not that we thought that much of it but like we've realized that like almost every single sushi restaurant was owned by Koreans rather than like Japanese and it's like you know who cares except it's like oh well maybe some of them were kind of moody adjacent right yeah interesting yeah so Sasakawa
0: can now turn away from all of that because they're going to be fine. He doesn't need to bankroll anymore. He probably doesn't need the bad press. Uh, you know, he's moving on to things like, you know, founding the U.S. Japan Foundation, where Kissinger was on the border, board of directors, or getting all up in a trilateral commission, which get started in 1973. Yeah. No. Giving interviews, week talking about how he's the world's wealthiest fascist and the last fool
1: on earth and all this kind of stuff. There really is this shift, right? Like he consolidates in Japan and then he really shifts to more of an international focus.
0: Yeah. And what they had learned through like working with Morally Army is that this you know, in and, and the Occupation Without Troops book, there's a whole section called private diplomacy, where it's NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, cultural associations, cultural education, and, and cultural uh, understanding, you know, uh, nonprofits and things, and philanthropic foundations and things, and the Trilateral Commission. Uh, <laughs> just, just real quick, the Trilateral Commission, I mean, very basic It's a Rockefeller kind of funded enterprise. uh, Jimmy Carter was hit and became president by the trilateralists, according to some. Um, And it was uh, this idea that you needed to have this Western Europe slash Japan slash United States. That's the three trilateral. Yeah. And it's working on problems of understanding peace and multilateral diplomacy to make a better world. And, you know, they put out a paper in the 70s, the Trilateral Commission, talking about the problems of too much democracy.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> How it's a bad thing. And, you know.
1: Whomst among us.
0: <laughs> right, right. But, but, these, but the cowboy factions, uh, nevertheless, didn't. Did into all of that. Uh, Some the trilateralists became part of the boogaboo entertainment complex of uh, you know, the John Birch theater mongering, The trilateralists, you know, they're out the future. Date.
1: Which is also just, an, I mean, whether or not they intended it to be that way, it ends up shit any real study or critique of the trilateral commission, right? The,
0: the, that is correct. Uh, yeah.
3: And, and that's and that's too bad but come on baby pick me up out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing luck voodoo blue got juice in it swallow what I'm about to spit done got 86 from the copper creeper singing this I took it to the go J. boo Ray, my people there they feeling me down skin, low skin roll, more characters and Stephen King Said, I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up, stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that bigger around. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Said, the fuck out, cause they done let the wolves out. They're coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street. Mama, fight or flight, adrenaline, you feel that little tingle in your feet. Mama, no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet. Hit the street, tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it. Mm. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Geronimo, hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. Come on, baby, pick me up, out here in my wiki, up. Got y'all on some Aztec bullshit, never getting used to it. Got bales of weed and catapult with Santomware diffused in it. Shoot it over the castle while the Mikra can't patrol it all from Berlin to the great, while the greatest walls are bound to fall. Vato about a Genghis Chapo Come on legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even Carter realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash Honey best believe They sooner take it out your ass Sunday We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs Officer, excuse me please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the Georgia you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast. I sing my hooter blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here, but that war administration's our whole civilization. What?
0: The 70s, here's another thing I got to bring up back in the 70s. Um, that was a decade in the United States and I recently learned also in Japan where the whole culture war wedge issue around abortion started getting
1: gone. Yeah. When you were telling me this, we were planning the episode, like I was like blown away. Like, no, go off. Like this is good. Okay.
0: So, you know, my little pet theory is that the abortion thing the united states is really about we need more white babies right Mm -hmm. sorry it's just a demographic uh eugenic issue disguised as a culture war issue so if you look at charts like birth rate in japan in the 1970s it was really going down and it was in the united states too and so here we go abortion is bad whatever right Uh, that's just my theory about it um so there was another one of these new religions in Japan with which Sasukawa was affiliated. It was called, this one was called, Ben So there's this idea in Japan called Mizuko Koyu, uh, which means Water Child Memorial Service. And it's kind of like last rites for a miscarried pregnancy or a stillborn child or an abortion. hmm uh and it's, it's a quasi buddhist practice from that you see in several parts of asia and the idea is that if you don't give these funerary rites then you run the risk of the haunted by the dead baby or babies. so the new the original new religion of ben tenchu and its uh, prophetess uh, who started it in 1952 uh, in the original iteration of that many of them talk about musical koyu rights. But after she died, her successor started performing these rights as a way to like stay relevant, I guess. And I'm doing a very bad job of explaining this, but, but the basics I got from a book called Marketing the Menacing Fetus by <laughs> Helen Hart. I mean, that's a hell of a title. The author is Helen Hartacre. Uh, and the Bentenshu religion had a magazine called the Mysterious Shroud in 1979. They start talking about the, the fetus rights. But Sasakawa, according to this author, had been a big supporter of this new religion, especially in the 70s. So, again, you know, this is the time of declining birth rates. This is a time when Sasakawa is railing against teachers unions in Japan, just like his rightist counterparts started doing in the 70s, you know, teachers unions. Um, anyway I, I just had to throw that in there because if you get to reference a book called marketing the menacing fetus you, you've got to swing at that right
1: <laughs> well let me let me let me ask you because I feel like maybe like okay how was that like okay because like Japan always like for a long time they were like they've really like abortion was not particularly an issue like access to it was available. Like it was viewed as like a medical procedure, etc., cetera, et cetera. So how was this group like used to try to like make abortion an issue? Like, I guess I missed the needle connection, like threading the needle.
0: Yeah. It, you know, just Sasakawa's name comes up as a supporter of this bentenshi religion Right. at a time when they are, Really hyping up like, like maybe if abortion for a while was no big deal in Japan, then uh, trying to coerce the population to saying anybody that has an abortion needs to do this religious right, otherwise right. you're you're going to be uh, having like a baby poltergeist at your house or whatever. It sounds to me, it's yeah. to me just a little bit of like the same thing where they make a woman. United States, like go through some kind of abortion counseling guilt trip thing before you get it. Yeah, you know, just just try one more time to see if I can shame you into having this white baby for me. Uh, it sounds kind of like the same sort of thing. Like imagine being a woman. You know, I can't. I can't imagine. Being a woman, but I can't imagine abortion is easy. You know, I, I don't want to really get into it too much because what the hell? I I don't have a womb, but it's probably a really hard time. Uh, for a woman to have an abortion uh, under any circumstances. And so now, if you have family or society pressuring you, then you do some uh, after action kind of shaming ritual where you have a, a funeral for, for your fetus that you aborted. Yeah. It, it might have the effect of discouraging it.
1: Yeah, there's. It's like a win-win for them because you either probably have to pay them to do the stupid ritual or then you feel bad about it and a certain percentage will then just have the kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting, like, psyop. And one of the things
0: Sasakawa was really, really interested in for a long time, and we talked about this in his Duke University interview I listened to the other night, was population control. Mm-hmm. The the Draper, William Draper guy, had started some UN population commission thing. And Sasakawa was like, I'm a big believer. I really respected Draper. He called Draper out as one of his favorite people that he worked <laughs> with. And during the occupation days, he became friends with the guy. And so he was a really big supporter of those efforts. And so I can imagine a guy like Sasakawa saying, women refusing to have japanese babies is
1: unpatriotic yeah bear me sons (laughs) that's that's so interesting too because like well we know from like the conspiratainment like world that like like malthusian like depopulation like there are fears that like the trilaterals are like planning like a depopulation event and or like encouraging that right yeah and like uh, there's Sasakawa in the Trilateral Commission, like, basically being really fixated on population levels.
0: You know, I don't know how uh, fixated he really was, and this is just weird, because you, you're, I'm, I'm just trolling. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, fishing for any... <laughs> doing the, We're doing the literature review. We're doing the historiography here, right, for prepping for the show, and here's his name popping up as being a supporter of a new religion that happens to be wrapped up In supernaturalizing the abortion issue in Japan, (laughs) and it's at a time of declining birth rates. So,
1: yeah, I mean, didn't he like identify himself as a founder, an honorary founder of the Draper World Population Fund, which like he identified himself as an honorary founder, which is such a like Sasakawa thing to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so it, so as the seventies keep going, he, he's got his U S Japan foundation going. And he's starting to really cut checks for all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, Jimmy Carter, his fellow trilateralist, uh, left office, you know, in 81, and, uh, was not very popular. And so he was not very popular and neither was Ryoichi Sasakawa at that time. But they kind of teamed up for some mutual reputation rehabilitation efforts, and so Carter had this global initiative 2000 or Global 2000 thing that was all about ending poverty and you know getting vaccines to African people or you know kinds of stuff like you know Jimmy Carter, the post president uh, humanitarian. And Sasakawa gave him a bunch of money and there's pictures of them two jogging together, you know, (laughs) and they became like, they became buddies They became really good friends like to, to, you know, and it's like, okay, people say, Oh, he's my friend. Um, you can't always believe it, but like the Carters literally got a special invitation to Sasakawa's like mother's funeral or something. And, like, they didn't even tell anybody till after the funeral was over. They, they like, literally got to go to one of Sasakawa's family members.
1: Which sure, sure sounds like it to me, like a real friendship. Yeah, it sounds –
0: yeah, it does, you know, it does. So, yeah, and, and that's that's bringing us into the 80s. I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead of us here.
1: Um, well, I think we're on track, except I was going to ask if we should talk just about the uh, the Philippines – the Marcos thing. Oh my
0: God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so at the beginning of the, I referenced this Dan Carlin supernova series, right? Mm-hmm. And he starts out by talking about this Japanese soldier who won't come out, you know, out of his, uh, out of his, uh, his little hiding spot in the, in the Philippine jungle. And this is in the island of Wupang, or is it Luzon? One of the holdouts. Yeah. Yeah. And so this famous story of this Japanese holdout um, is, is the way that Dan Carlin opens his series. But if you read the whole thing, uh, if you read the account as presented in the Seagraves book, gold warriors, um, fantastic book. I read it in a weekend.
1: Holy crap. Very readable. A plus. It's a great book. It is a great book.
0: Uh, but anyway, when that guy finally surrendered, now they can go look for that treasure vault that's said to be on the island. <laughs> and so they do. And not only that, uh, and they counted as one of the recoveries. They call it the Blue Bang recovery. And it's Sasakawa working with Marcos to make it happen.
1: Which I'm not saying any ill, like anything ill of Dan Carlin, but like I've heard so many people just enchanted and fixated by the concept of Japanese like soldier holdouts from world war II, And by all means, it's an amazing story. It's interesting, but isn't it so much of a different story when you realize that they might have actually been there on a real mission. Like they might've been protecting a stash of gold, right? It completely changes the narrative for one thing. And for two, like, if you don't mention that, then you end up sounding like a huge sucker. Like, well,
0: you know, I there's another podcast that I'll just mention in the same context uh, context here that I also listened to a bunch of episodes of mm-hmm. prep for this uh, called History of Japan. Yeah, and <clears throat> I would put hardcore history and history of Japan into the box of what I will just call a Normie history. Yeah. And I'm going to be grateful for those guys for doing the work that they're doing, because in my opinion, you can't have the deep parapolitical history decontextualized out of normal history. You got to have both. So it's okay. And Dan Carlin, my God, there's like, I think six episodes, they're four hours each. I've listened to his stuff for years, so it's not like I just started when I was researching for this podcast, but um, it's okay that he doesn't go into all the deep, crazy stuff because I can't take all the shit all the time. I got to go normie myself sometimes. So. No, that's
1: good. That's a good point.
0: You, you got to have the the normie stuff. Uh, but but back to the not-so-normie. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> they get the guy off the island, they go do the gold recovery, and the next thing you know, Sasakawa is partnering with um, what's his book? It's marcos mm-hmm. to build this like outdoor wildlife hunting preserve resort for like rich people that is going to be a garden of earthly delights including uh you know people that want you know they were calling it an outdoor open brothel some of the religious leaders there was a lot of public pressure uh, yeah. saying Sasakawa and Marcos you guys cannot open this outdoor zoo slash brothel or whatever the hell this is you can't do it and they backed off of it. So.
1: yeah and like Sasakawa was generally involved in, well okay the Philippines was full of Yakuza in the first place right and the Philippines much like like the Philippines sadly was <laughs> very, uh, exploited in terms of their sex industry They're, you know, so the, both the United States and Japan, right. Would, uh, basically do sex tourism in the Philippines. Yeah. And, you know, that's bleak enough separately. The Philippines has always been, I think one of like two or three hotspots for child pornography production entirely related, but the Yakuza were there helping run the sex tourism and Sasakawa was involved, not just in that one particular resort that I think they were developing, but I think he had his fingers in a few of the other, uh, enterprises, I guess you could say. Well, cause he, they also did hunting and fishing and stuff. So it's like, it all is mixed together, sadly, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very bleak stuff. <laughs>
0: oh man yeah the 70s
1: what a time Yep. no but like they like recovered a bunch of gold like it's crazy like (laughs) oh my god
0: yeah it's really unbelievable um you know one thing about gold warriors and uh, don't let me get too far off the plot here but Mm -hmm. they the japanese empire it's almost like in, in stocking away all of that gold looted from like the whole Pacific Rim of in the the West Side of it um, and storing it up in the Philippines and hiding it in the expert ways that they did. It was like a down payment on a post-war empire that they could ransom their way back into becoming a world power through mm-hmm. economics, through this dragon's horde gold and treasures and art. It's really unbelievable. And it really actually freaking worked. Yeah. A lot of leverage over the occupied occupying authorities. They all want to know where the gold is. We know where the gold is. And let's let's work together and we'll see what we can do about getting y'all some of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's gotta be like the Japanese like elites had to have been studying like the British and Dutch like deeply, right? and like yeah seeing how they would like basically like steal all this wealth but then like not be ostentatious about showing it necessarily like yeah. really interesting stuff like there's there like the east india trading company you don't see any statues for that anywhere because everyone knows it was like a fucking pirate operation right right it all had to be laundered through other different organizations instead. Yeah. Oh man. It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, I guess along those same lines though, like Sasakawa really was tight with, you know, president Marcos. He said, and there's a quote here, I was very close to Marcos long before he became president. Which is like pretty interesting because Marcos was president for a long time. <laughs> like, yeah. Um,
0: Sasakawa was stiffy when he got out of Sugama, like I said. So
1: mm-hmm. then Sasakawa said, I personally donated the biggest cultural halls in the Philippines. And, and he said, as well, I supplied the cement. <laughs> and it's like, okay, uh, were those cultural halls for Japanese culture, for one thing, right? <laughs>
0: You know, it's a way to purchase your way into a higher level of diplomatic and you know, cultural cooperation it's, it's that same kind of reparations revolving door where you go through it and come back out of it. like wait i'm still in japan yeah that's right it's like good money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> still in japan you're welcome guys sorry about the war what's
1: that what's that scarface quote where he's like first you get the, oh wait, you don't, you're not a movie guy. Oh, well. Okay. First you get the money, then you get the power. I don't, I don't remember how it goes, but it's like getting the money is the crucial thing. Like if you're a true sociopath, like you get the money, then you can launder your reputation. Right. And so like by the seventies, he was switching modes. So like if in the eighties and like nineties, he was like, fully on reputation fixing like what like the first half of his life was fully like get the bag secure the bag and like it was uh, probably what around the 70s when he was like switching gears right going international going reputation control
0: yeah and uh and and that that brings us to the 80s and yeah (laughs) <laughs> you, you got the copy of the Yakuza book that mm-hmm. I did. I, I got a used copy that's older. But the copy you have, when did that book come out? 87?
1: Let me see. I, um, I am flipping to the front of it. <clears throat>
0: while you're doing that, I'll just say that one of Sasakawa's buddies on the other end of the trilateral spectrum over in Britain was a guy named Robert Maxwell, Captain Bob. <laughs> and there's a picture of him on one in the Guardian newspaper archives yes. of Captain Bob standing next to a beaming, smiling, Ryoichi Sasakawa. <laughs> Robert Maxwell had Pergamon press. He had his press organ, you know, for a long time, you know. I know your your listeners don't need to know this, but just real quick, Robert Maxwell, father of Ghislaine Maxwell, something something FC. Okay. Now, <laughs> yeah, so you've got it in your book. I had to look it up on Google Books because it's not in mine, but apparently when the Yakuza book was published, Robert Maxwell played a role in trying to help suppress that book.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to say really quick, Robert Maxwell got a – monopoly on soviet like scientific material right he was the only guy publishing it which doesn't that sound just a little bit like a state approved uh motorboat racing like (laughs) monopoly kind of does doesn't that seem just a little bit like that um anyway i mean just a license to print money yeah okay sure okay so The original edition of this book, 19... Okay, we're talking about Yakuza, Japan's Criminal Underworld, right? Which is... Phenomenal book. Phenomenal. Like, it is, for one thing, one of the few English-speaking books on the Yakuza that's, like, really, really good, right? Yeah. And in 86, the book comes out bestseller. And the British edition, which I think it the book didn't come out in the US for a while, it sold really well. But even though it was such a bestseller, Robert Maxwell ordered the entire inventory to be shredded suddenly in 1989 over the protests of both his staff and the authors naturally. And the authors were like what the hell why? But you know why, of course. You and I, we both know why. It's because Maxwell was asked to by Sasakawa.
0: And uh, in the book *Agents of Influence*, the author Pat Cho uh, talks about all these different—whether it's it's dirty, uh, dirty laundry being aired in the press or in book form, or it's uh, uh, the U.S. government voting against, you know. Trade protectionism on the part of Japan, or whatever it is, everything gets this soft threat from the Japanese saying, "You know, this has." I'm just saying. <laughs> it was one of those kind of deals. You know, it's more than just Sasakawa It's like this. Is, there was a thing in the '80s when people were trying to talk about some of this stuff. Uh, the Japanese PR world, would say, "You know, this is just Japan fashion." You guys are just being racist or you know, you're just bashing Japan. And it's like, well, no, okay, sure, but well, no, this really happened.
1: Yeah, you know. No, I mean, there's a long, long list of people. Like we legitimately probably couldn't be doing this podcast like or an equivalent version of this podcast, like in the 80s. Like we would have we would experience personal problems if we did, right? Would you say that?
0: Oh bro, we're we're gonna die, bro. When, when this comes out, <laughs> it's later, Peter. I, I'm sorry, um, but yeah, yeah, you, you, they, they really did a good job of keeping a lid on a lot of this stuff all the way up in the 90s. You know, we should, you know, come back to that. But uh, mm-hmm. but back to Robert Maxwell. There's a story in the Guardian. It's the one that's got the picture. It's called "The Forgotten Story of Robert Maxwell's 1986 Commonwealth Games." It's just published in the Guardian. And I'll just read a quote from it because, again, we're just, just, just throwing color. This is a, a Jackson Pollock uh, rendering Ryoichi Sasakawa's life and exploits here. So, quote, one amusing and typically bombastic aside to the Edinburgh game saga is when he introduced his Japanese friend Ryoichi Sasakawa to the media. He hailed the businessman who pumped in far more money than Maxwell himself as a multi millionaire philanthropist who had, quote, single-handedly funded the eradication of leprosy, when still more than 30 years later, he hangs on. And so there's another quote here. Bob was a unique character. We became quite close friends, but I have to say he was a bit of a pig when we were eating. On one occasion, Maxwell ordered a banquet for 14 people from Edinburgh's top Chinese restaurant. There was plenty of Dom Pernyong, too, said alone and when he said, tuck in, I asked if we shouldn't wait for the other guests. There weren't any. There was enough food for 12 people. It just got stuck in. Sometimes he stinks. There was curry sauce dripping down his shirt when he went off to bed. Oh, where's the quote about him meeting the queen in here?
1: Oh, no way. He got to meet,
0: got to meet Queen Elizabeth, and he apparently like fell to the ground, bowing and making like a high-pitched wailing uh and to which the queen said uh, what have we here and robert maxwell is explaining to the queen that um uh, th- this is this is a proper japanese uh custom for addressing uh royalty right <laughs> that happened in the 80s yeah
1: i'd like to think that he just because of all of his parapolitical experience he just had the natural, like, they live sunglasses so he could just see that she was a lizard?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, um, just some other quotes here from, from the 80s. Uh, the, uh, the chairman of the United States-Japan Foundation bills it as the most active philanthropic institution supporting projects and research about U.S.-Japan relations And the list of worthy causes backed by the foundation's money is impressive indeed. Grants from the foundation helped to pay for NPRs, full-time correspondent in Tokyo, Mm -hmm. Uh, finance programs on Japan produced by several public TV stations, including WGBH in Boston and Nebraska Public TV. The foundation's most recent annual report, this is from sometime in the 80s, Uh, shows that universities from Alabama to Texas Tech have accepted money from the foundation to support projects like an Alabama-Japan leadership program and a a Southwest program for teaching about Japan for pre-college educators. The foundation paid for a tour of Japan by black mayors from several U.S. cities. Some beneficiaries are literally as American as apple pie in 19. 88 the national foundation for future farmers in america received a grant to support teacher training and curriculum development on japanese agriculture Hmm. so he's got guys like jerry uh gerald ford and jimmy carter as honorary advisors on his foundation he's got people like rock robert mcnamara former rca ceo robert sarnoff on the board of directors and uh it's it's just crazy. Uh shared a table with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher at a banquet to honor a children's charity to which he gave some five hundred thousand pounds. He was the single largest contributor to the uh World Health Organization's smallpox eradication program. It was like two point seven, two point three million dollars you get that. It's just it's all over the place. I found one. Um, this is one of the Japan Research Institute. What was that called? Japan Policy Research Institute. Where They have mm-hmm. special papers. And there's a whole story about, um, it's called Fundraising in Japan, a Sasakawa Saga by Hans Burwald. And so this is a UCLA researcher studying kidney disease and asking Sasakawa for money. And like Japanese people wanted nothing to do with it. At least one of his American colleagues said, I'm not having anything to do with this. But, you know, they're eliminating kidney disease. So <laughs> why not? You, you know what I mean? Like, like you pretend you have kidney disease. Do you care that Sasakawa fitted the bill for that? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'll read, I'll read a quote from this. Uh, Japanese friends of longstanding, who I approached confidentially, provided me with their impressions of the kaicho. It's like the godfather of the god, the stuff. Why was he so disliked in Japan? <laughs> First, I was told, because he had not really worked for all the wealth he had in master control. Second, because he loved being in the limelight, his TV advertisements in which he personally appeared, and were especially strong. On the other hand, his pre-war and wartime support of fascism and militarism tended to be dismissed. And so Japanese colleagues of his would say, look, that was enough time in another different context. And the same went for his links to the criminal underworld. People would say he's not. But you say? There's, there's plenty of shit to go around the place of honor. He's Kishi quote you telling me about the other day. <laughs> you know, so he's like, should I cancel my appointment with the Sasakawa people? And so his, his Japanese friends are telling him, look, if you were a Japanese professor at a Japanese university, your career would be finished if you can't if you for, a, for a However, you're a foreigner, and the donation to UCLA that you might obtain, do not expect to be easy. Will be spent in your country in those circumstances. Make it acceptable? Yeah. So, you know, he's he was a big environmental guy. Uh, ocean health is a big thing for him. Eradication of leprosy, uh, like starting troops of Girl Scouts. They call them the Girl Guides in places like Kenya. Um, his in, in, uh, Robert Maxwell commissioned a book for Pergamum Press called Ryoichi Sasakawa, Warrior for Peace. <laughs> there's that ta- the talismanic, ambu- the, the amuletic word thing that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Here it is again it's peace, right? Um, and it, it, so there's this book that's just a gushing hagiography of Sasakawa that Robert Maxwell was finally being published. And it describes uh, Sasakawa as being a follower of a religion called waterology.
1: Now, what is waterology?
0: I guess it's just some kind of like reverence for water because everybody's made of water. Most of the earth's surface is covered in water. Water will take the shape of anything you put it in. There's no life without water. Is it a pun throwback to the dark ocean? Society, you know, (laughs) I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions <laughs> yeah he's a, he's a bit he, he runs one of the largest uh, ship you know shipping you know he's a shipping man in addition to all the other things talked about so why wouldn't you you know your, your whole livelihood is depending on water right so um, I don't know. You know so these are just some of the things that went on in the 80s with the guy that, you know he got the Linus Pauling Humanitarian Award. He got the damn Helen Keller Award. He got the UN <laughs> Peace Medal. Uh, collaborating with Carter, like I said, on this Global 2000 thing. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read a little from the obituary, uh, The Times Higher Education obituary. In 20 countries, some 60 universities, colleges, and institutes have either a Sasakawa Young. Leaders Fellowship Fund, or a Sasakawa Fellowship Fund for Japanese Language Education. In the majority of cases, the endowment of these funds was a flat $1 million each, regardless of whether it was Yale, Princeton, or Sussex, um, whether it was the Institute of Administration and Management <laughs> in Mongolia. Uh, so, Oxford University in '85 accepted $833,000 for the establishment of a Sasakawa Fund that is being managed by the university uh, and a spokeswoman for the Oriental Institute said she was not aware of any controversy it had in the Oxford game to someone who's notorious of stocks power. <laughs> but back to your thing about, back to your thing about that, that's one half of the reputation management, reputation
1: management. Yeah.
0: The dark side is crushing people that are, trying to talk about it so you would i had cut you off when you we were talking about it before maybe we should go back to our little working list we developed of all the people that paid the price we're trying to talk about it.
1: <laughs> well i was gonna say too just like the scripture goes where jesus says like some sort of uh passage in the bible that's like you know <laughs> people who do their good works in public they get their reward right then and it's just like sasakawa Really did ring out every last ounce of getting the reward of doing good works. Like he made it about as visible as he could possibly do. Like he got every last ounce of goodwill he possibly could out of this,
0: except for the Nobel Prize. That was the one thing that escaped him. And that's why he shouldn't have beat up his classmate when he was a kid. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah.
1: Kawabata was just like, no, veto.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: That's so funny. No, but like you're saying, yeah, like we had a running list, and I am certain that this is by no means, like, conclusive. But we have, like, first of all, Pat Choate, author of the book Agents of Influence, right? Do you remember what happened to Pat Choate? Um,
0: he got fired. Uh, the book didn't get to get published in japan until they took out the offending language about ryoichi (laughs) sasakawa i've got a i've got a quote over here that i'll read about it but uh yeah it was like this has potential to harm u.s japan relations this was like something that got brought up a lot as this excuse um for why you know this or that thing couldn't happen Mm -hmm. Um, let's see if I can find it yeah basically it was censored by Japan and it was specifically the Sasakawa stuff that had to come
1: yeah and like (laughs) there's no mystery there it's like very clear right (laughs) Um, there was uh, one of Japan's uh, I don't know like I'm seeing as quoted in the Yakuza book one of Japan's most respected journalists uh, Bunji Shunju And he was doing a six-month investigation of Sasakawa, and he got death threats and had to go into hiding, right? There was, I guess this might not be directly related to Sasakawa, but Iris Chang faced some interesting consequences um, due to her coverage of the rape of Nanking, right?
0: And so did Peggy and Sterling Seagrave with their Gold Warriors book.
1: Yeah, could you talk about what they had to do, how they had to live?
0: I would recommend instead of listening to me talk about it, that your listeners go find, uh, one of Dave Emery's interviews with, uh, the sea grapes where he talks about having a friend in the CIA, tell him, Hey, uh, the Kuomintang and, or the Japanese and just everybody in probably East Asia wants a piece of your ass at this point. Uh, Good job on the book, by the way. You might want to go into hiding because I'm telling you, there's a hit team coming for you. Uh, And so they were kind of on the run boats, you know, for years. And uh, you know, he was pretty sure his wife got cancer. uh, And you know, he he got run off this uh, of a of a narrow road coming back to his little house. uh, You know, at some point, found out where they were. They were hounded to the ends of the earth for. Daring to remember the past, great American sin. Yeah. Uh, there's another guy, Daniel Junis. So there's a there's a frontline documentary uh, called "The Resurrection." Group. And this came out around the time that the Gulf War was going, and there was a movie front group called the American Freedom Coalition that was doing a lot of heavy propagandizing to try to whip up support, and you're probably too young to remember, but everybody had a yellow rim to support the troops, and had you on their uh, cars and stuff. And uh, this American Freedom Coalition was kind of like a post-world anti-communist, sing singlow new right, uh, federation for, you know, waging culture war, whipping up support for the Gulf War, blah blah blah. So uh, that's how the, the frontline documentary starts. And, people in places like Iowa realizing that like, they're supporting this AFC that's really a moody front and they talk all about him, blah 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 but towards the end of it they start talking about his ties to the Japanese right like mm-hmm. who bankrolled him in his early days and uh, one of the people that's interviewed on there is the guy Pat Cho, agents of influence who talked about Another guy that they introduce as the author of a forthcoming book about the Moon Japanese connection, Daniel Judas and they interviewed him. And that book never got published. (laughs) It just never got published. So Uh. (laughs) there's some like snippets of it and stuff that are available in certain archives. I went looking for it. It's one place in Europe somewhere. Visit Brussels. Pay a lot of money to have a copy of it. Even that was not even the book itself. Yeah. But uh, that was a guy that was getting ready to do what John Roberts had mentioned earlier saying the other shoe's about to drop in the Korean Gate scandal. It's all about Japan. Well, here's 20 years later, here's a guy that's about to drop that shoe, and that shoe still ain't
1: dropped. Uh, so that's a guy. Very interesting. And you got your Yakuza
0: book, which we, we talked about the Yakuza book being pulped by. Captain Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I and mean, you've got to wonder, though, about uh, Inside the League, the World and the Economist League book. Because that book came out in uh, as well, right? As Iran-Contra was about to grasp the baby, Yeah. They went scorched earth on the moonies. They did not shy away from you know, Sasakawa and Kodama and stuff. And it's like, I wonder what their life was like after that book.
1: Yeah, or like, did they have some sort of cover? You know, like.
0: Oh, I got theories. They never mentioned Marvin Liebman in that book. It's like, well, wait. Anyway, um, also uh, the Korea Gate uh, scandal. We can go back to that, and uh, Donald mm-hmm. Fraser uh, was a Minnesota congressman who was leading that investigation. Congress said. You know, his house got burned down. Really? His chief researcher was a guy named Robert Bodicher that had written a book in the early eighties called the Gifts of Deceit that was all about creative tongue some parts, some moon. And he like, you know, jumped off a building, killed himself. And you know, I mean, there's there's quite a story of, of people being told, Oh no, you know, when they try to unpack some of this.
1: Yeah. Do you remember what was up with the uh, other Japanese journalist Saito? I don't recall.
0: No, it was that that investigation was going to happen. Like, he mm. got shot at by some Japanese guys or something. Else. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And then what was the deal with the French Humanities Endowment?
0: Oh, yeah. So that one was from, like,
1: 2009.
0: Yeah. So there's this... Uh, French, uh, what was it called, Society for Political Science, some kind of French academic institute dealing with political science. And uh, there was a petition that was signed saying, hey, uh, this, this whole uh, effort, this Japanese, it was going to be a, a celebration, 150 year celebration of diplomatic ties between France and and it was funded by Sasakawa, French Sasakawa. got a French one. French Sasakawa Foundation. Um, and so all of these French academics signed this petition saying, this is bad. We don't want to take this guys' money whatever. And so one of uh, the academics that had signed that got served papers paper right at the conference that he was at basically
2: yeah.
0: being sued, sued for libel for, uh, for be merching. And I don't know how that ever was resolved or whatever, but here we are. We're not in the 90s anymore. We're all the way in the first decade of the the odds. That reputation management is still
1: going. The repair of reputations. Can I
0: bring up? I know we've been at it for a long time, but I want to bring up one other chapter that deals with the 90s to 2000.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: This would be the. Support for somebody named El Chino, also known as Chino Chet, Alberto Fujimori. Oh, president of Peru from 1990 to 2000.
1: Oh man, dude, I don't, I don't even know about this, but I know all about Fujimori. Holy shit! Okay, go on. Okay,
0: so, so you've heard of the Kroll Associates? Like, if you ever listen not the TV show. although i think that guy's related but like if you ever studied and did a deep dive on 9-11 yeah
1: yeah that guy is like the son of like the kroll guy yeah yeah yeah
0: ain't that some shit a- anyway uh <laughs> kroll associates had done some. i found this online it's all in spanish and it's marked confidential and it's like some kind of opo research paper on
1: fujimori Dude, you gotta send me that. Oh my gosh. I will. I don't know if I told you I speak Spanish.
0: Yeah, well, I speak Bill Gates translate Spanish for me, not <laughs> yeah. Microsoft Word. So, uh, anyway, so, so, Fujimori was a Japanese Peruvian, mm-hmm. which sounds, like, odd, but it's apparently And there was, like, some birther-type stuff around his presidency, where it was like, is he really born in Peru? <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so his nickname among peruvians was el chino
1: yeah that's the classic latino thing
0: <laughs> yeah you know it, it's everybody's a little racist i guess so fujimori seems to have uh taken that title with good humor um but the chino shape, not so much and that was the nickname given to him because of his apparent similarities uh to a visto pino shape. right there's a reason for the comparison because there's, there's something the Peruvians remember called the Fuji Shocks, which were like harsh neoliberal reforms, but it in the 90s under his rule.
1: Um, he was also fighting the Shining Path around the same time, wasn't he?
0: Yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> he did, did like an auto coup in 92, suspended the Congress and the judiciary, you know, international condemnation to war against the Shining Path. He was accused of human rights abuses death squads and and accused of running a eugenics program in which some 300,000 indigenous women were forcibly sterilized. Now, did they do the little water baby ritual thing for all of them? I, I doubt that they did. Yeah, so anyway in this again i'm googling the shit out of sasakawa and i find this because there's a sasakawa connection here too. the sasakawa family was there for the rise and fall of chinoshe sasakawa's creek gave him a lot of campaign contributions the Gumi yakuza were mentioned in this context in this dossier as well mm-hmm. and when he fled when he fled in 2000 he fled the country and he got to shack up with Sasakawas.
1: Really? Wait, he stayed with Sasakawa?
0: This is what I. This is what I thought was called or
1: whatever. Um, Holy shit! He was,
0: he was under indictment for corruption and death squads, and, and he literally like tried to fax them his resignation, like some breakup, <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> like breaking up by text
1: kind of shit. Uh, Dude, I got I got to read this, man. Holy cow. I,
0: I will send it to you, but eventually he was put in prison, and I guess he's still there, but. Uh, It's interesting because Sasakawa in that Duke University interview, he's talking about the population problem and and Draper and all that. And here's Fujimori. Uh, Yeah. So Sasakawa's son, one of his sons, actually tried to intervene directly to keep uh, Fujimori out of prison to no avail. And I think with that, I've probably gone through just about everything, but except for my last sort of.
1: Well, okay. So I think the last story we'll get to, but I was going to ask also the Institute for space architecture.
0: Oh yeah. Holy <laughs> crap. That's out of, that's out of Houston. Yeah. And you can, you can go to YouTube and look up Sasakawa space architecture and you'll see a video, I think Buzz Aldrin's on it. <laughs> and it's got these people talking about, you know, it's space architecture. So it's like, in other words, how do you build a moon base? Or how, how are the ergonomics in the interior of human spaces for people on a space station? Know, and how should it be designed? And so there's this think tank. I think it's out of the University of Houston. It's in Houston where they have the Johnson Space Center. Used to go on a field trips there as a kid. know, this is when Houston, we have a problem. That's have mission controllers. Houston's a big space area, yeah. right? So it's fitting that they would be there. Um, but in the video, they're promoting it. You get like, I think it's Buzz Aldrin. Uh, is one of the people out there?
1: He's a freaking kind of a weirdo, actually. <laughs> Separate from this, like <laughs> anyway.
0: Right. Well, the way they talk about it, the Space Architecture Institute, they always they're they're talking about it, but they never say the word Sasa on the video. It was just interesting. Like, is anybody going to call it by its name? <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, so that's another thing. It's another in the, in the galaxy of, of Sasakawa spinoffs.
1: See, first you start in Osaka, then you go to Japan, then you go to Far East Asia, then you go international. Sasakawa—he's going galactic now,
0: going into space. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: uh, it's crazy. So I got one more. I got one more Sasakawa story. Let's do it. Okay. So while the Lockheed bribery scandal was like still hot and the Fraser committee investigating Korea gate was, was wrapping up, there was a shopping mall getting ready to open in Tokyo.
2: Mm.
0: And it was called the Sunshine 60. And the 60 referred to the 60 stories. It was the tallest building, not only in Japan at the time, but the tallest building in all of Asia at the time. And the grand opening was 1978.
1: Well, I was going to say, so it opened and it got built and everything. Oh yeah. Okay. Grand
0: opening. Grand opening, 1978, and from day one, people started complaining. Uh, chill, haunted winds ghosts and apparitions floating down the halls and moaning poltergeist sounds and the sounds of iron clanging on iron <laughs> you become you're a shop owner in this this big shopping mall you come in the morning to your shop to find things knocked over and scattered around the shops like like you know your uh your shelves are all disorganized like some goblins had their way to the place the night before <laughs> So, so Sunshine 60 was supposed to be this high-tech, high-rise illustration of Japan's roaring nineteen seventies economy, right? But here's the thing: it was built right on top of what used to be a prison. What? Oddly enough, sixty Japanese war criminals were executed there before nineteen forty-eight. So that's one floor for every condemned. And Sugamo Prison, before and during World War II, was where they kept like thought criminals, leftists, with people who spoke out against the war. And during the first half of occupation, it was home to the opposite of Sugamo University, as we about. So I found this on a website called E Flux Journal. An article is called The Imperial Ghost and the Neoliberal Machine. The author is Koichiro Osaka. And he says in this article that there's this urban myth in Tokyo that says that Sunshine 60 is basically a big monument to the war criminals who died there. Literally built over the place they died, one floor for each prisoner, building a rectangular, kind of like a tombstone. And even the name Sunshine, if you squint a little bit, kind of implies rising sun, maybe? Damn... So inside of it, there's this museum called the Museum of the Ancient Orient. And when I saw that that was the case, I wondered maybe, like, maybe some of the looted treasure that Japanese looted during the, the war might be there. But instead, it's all, like, ancient Mesopotamia and Assyrian and Egyptian stuff. Really? And that's not what i You know, I don't think Orient, you know, it just... I, I didn't get it. It's like it probably would have been a bit much to have like ancient masterwork created porcelain and shame Dynasty, it, so. <laughs> you know. So good for them.
1: S- things they stole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but but that you know, there's this uh, man. I don't want to get into it because we've been going for a long time. But like, why is all this like stuff in like the Bible area? And there's this really interesting history of christianity in japan and there were some people and you can hear this on the the history of japan podcast almost like a cousin to christian identity the japanese version where they're like we're the real people in the kind of thing
1: oh yeah they have a whole thing about jesus like went and died in japan like there's a whole thing with that too yeah yeah
0: right there's a whole thing with that
1: and there was a whole thing with the protocols with
0: zion when they well, the Japanese really went in after the Bolshevik Revolution, and they were marveling at how the so-called learned elders of Zion had toppled this giant Russian empire. <laughs> and they thought, man, we need to find these people and see if we can get allied with them. And there were translations of it being made you know, back in the day, and people had... There was like a whole Japanese subset, subculture of buying into the protocols.
1: (laughs) Just being fans of it.
0: (laughs) And also, because the Europeans they were encountering were so into all of that, they just, some of them assumed that there must be something to it. And so there was some weird, like, we got to find these learned LH designers. Maybe they can help us. (laughs) But anyway, I wonder if maybe there's some kind of weird folklore connection with the types of artifacts that are inside China Sixty and all of that.
1: No, that is so crazy. And like, I just looked it up and apparently also the Soviet spy, Richard Sorge, like that's where he would have been hanged to because he was hanged at Sugamo prison. Very interesting.
0: Yeah. That, that spy ring was something Charles Willoughby helped break up and talk about it for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, he wrote the book on it like crazy.
0: Right, right. After the, the, the relocation of Sugama, after it was, it was determined that this prison was going to go bye-bye, um, uh, Kodama said, I want to visit this place before you demolish this prison. Yeah. And so Kodama shows up with a large <laughs> bouquet a bunch of thick incense sticks and he walks around the site placing the bouquet at the spot where Tojo ended his life with the incense and prayed for a long time. So when Kishi had his arrest warrant issued as a war criminal, one of his old teachers in his local province sent him what's called a Tanka poem. I don't know a lot about Japanese literature, but here's the English translation poem sent by his teacher. Mm -hmm. Before he went to Sugamo, says, "Quote: To grieve is the loss, not of life, but of honor, your name
2: that lasts for eternity." And the
0: implication of the poem is, as the kids would say these days, "a kys you kill yourself." And and Kishi replied with a poem of his own, and here's what it said: "Quote." To inherit is the story, not of honor, but of righteousness in the act of war. Now, that seems really prophetic on Kishi's part. Like, you know, I mean, this is me doing interpretation of something that I read on the internet on that Eflux Journal uh, article and. He's translated that Japanese, so don't trust my interpretation at all, okay? But to me, it reads like Ishii was saying, if I can't have honor, I will settle for righteousness. And no, I'm not going to kill myself. And watch what I do next if I ever get out of here. So in hindsight, that seems really prophetic. Like, you know, after he got out, just like a lot of these other writers, they did a lot in the service of Japan. Yeah. And the lottery that wasn't very honorable. But if you take go back to that long geologic time span view of history, you know, maybe Kichi uh, just had to settle for righteousness <laughs> if he couldn't have honor. And these are the guys that rebuilt and made Japan into one of the world's largest economies with empire spans the globe yeah isn't that something
1: that is something (laughs) holy cow damn
0: sasakawa sasakawa died in 1995 i think he was 90 something years old the obituaries you know his is uh it's a mixed bag as, as to what his legacy is but going back to the beginning you know this is a guy whose life uh, span basically the entire 20th century and back to what I was saying before he leaves Sugamo at the halfway point of his life and these three amigos you don't have to like them but they really helped build Japan into what it is and people in Japan a lot of times don't want to hear those names they don't like that statue they didn't like Shokyo Rainbow. they didn't like you know, you know but I'm sure that from somewhere in the depths of the dark ocean, uh, from whence he came, Sasakawa's uh, ghost is probably uh, chiding these people for not being grateful enough for all that he did for them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you make a good case though, that like uh, Sasakawa did more than he had to, to repair his reputation. Like, one of my benchmarks and it's probably not the most like relevant, but like I have looked a fair amount into Howard Hughes and that guy, that's a guy who famously gave his quote unquote, gave his fortune away. And like, man, like the Howard Hughes foundation didn't give away shit. They barely gave any money to anyone for the longest time. Like, and he still got all the good press, you know what I'm saying? So like, yeah, yeah, Sasakawa could have given vastly much less and still probably gotten most of the reputation repair points. I guess you could say like he really didn't have to do as much as he did. And so like, <laughs> while I still think he's fundamentally a villain, I think he's probably as to the extent that I could possibly know he seems less villainous than perhaps like he could have been at least. I don't know.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean it's an interesting question. Uh what how much money do you have to throw at your own reputation and your own legacy to tip the scale into being remembered as this you know great humanitarian philanthropist? Yeah. And what is the answer, the dollar value of that question? I don't know. God knows, whatever. But Sasakawa seems to be one of the only people I can think of who actually set out to try to answer that question with <laughs> a big ass
1: checkbook. He has to be one of the main guys who probably, if anyone ever did it, it might, you know, he would be in the running. Yeah. It ain't the Queen of
0: England. She can't <laughs> touch it. You know, it ain't Howard Hughes. So at yeah. a certain point, I will say this. That I, I will say when, when this guy says I did it all for Japan, he did say that. Mm-hmm. I, I am going to believe him. I, I think a lot of that stuff was you know sincere on his part, and it wasn't just Mr. Japan who liked to be you know Ryoichi Sasakawa, the great you know striding the 20th century like the colossus, whatever. Yes, there was a lot of it self-aggrandizement. It. But I also do think he sincerely was doing it for, for, his, for his nation and, and laundering Japan's reputation after the war and yeah. taking that on himself as an avatar or an embodiment of Japanese aspirations and getting all the glory, but also doing a lot of the work. So, you know, it's history, man. It's a mixed bag. What can I say?
1: It is decidedly a mixed bag. Like his sons are to this day trying to cure leprosy. <laughs>
0: you know what I mean? Like, all right, I get, it, I get, it. calm down. You know, you know. But no, they're they're still doing it. So it's like, is it at a certain point you have to say this is? They're not just faking it anymore. This is this is what they're doing. This is what it's really about. And if you got cured of leprosy or like kidney disease or like smallpox, you know, thank you, Mr. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. His name's all over it, so you're welcome, humanity.
1: <laughs> no, it really does raise so many of these questions, and it's like there's no way to answer them. Like, yeah, very, very interesting.
0: Well, we've been at it for four hours, so I think we we got to be done, right? Give yeah. your listeners a break here.
1: Yeah, I know. Honestly, I mean, we'll see. Maybe I'll break it into several pieces. I'm not sure exactly what I'll do, but I did want to say um, probably just because, well, I always try to do it, but also I think you have sources that I didn't even touch. It might take a while, but oh, I can run yeah. through a couple of the books I used and then maybe you can also, if you want. <clears throat>
0: yeah, no, I, I thank you for reminding me because I wanted that. Uh, yeah, I, I love was- that. Yeah. You we're cited at the end of each episode I think it's
1: cool and I do think that we have been citing it the whole time but I think it could be nice also to get them all in one spot <clears throat> so I'll go first uh, I used the book Yakuza Japan's Criminal Underworld which I don't know if okay probably one of the most recommended by me if you're interested in this stuff uh, by Kaplan and Dubrow that's oh, extremely good uh, I used a book, which was actually Keith Allen Dennis's recommendation, An Occupation Without Troops: Wall Street's Half Century of Domination of Japanese Politics by, I think Glenn Davis. And was there a co-author? Yeah.
0: Glenn Davis and John, Glenn Davis and John G. Ross.
1: Yes. Now that one is very technical, but there's like not an ounce of fat on it. so like it's pretty short. If you're interested in obviously what the topic is like, also recommend. Then of course there's Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Again, hard recommend. Probably Gold Warriors and Yakuza, yeah, uh, number one and number two, or you know, one of the two. If you re- if you read one book, it would it should be one of those two. But I, I mean, recommendation on everything, honestly. Then another source that Keith clued me into was the Japan policy research institutes, policy papers, particularly 83 and 11 really, really crucial stuff. Like, um, any, like what, what other books, what do you got?
0: Um, in, in addition to those, uh, agents of influence by Pat Choate, mm-hmm. uh, Inside the League, the book about the world in the League. There's a book called Blood Brothers, The Criminal Underworld of Asia, whose authors I don't have in front of me, so I can't tell you who wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Hogan's Spooks, which is a book to get hang on to. You don't ever let anybody borrow. Uh, a lot of web pages, trawling web pages, Google Books. Uh, and, oh, there's another one, the Nationalism and the Right-Wing in Japan by Ivan Morris yeah uh, and finally, you know, I do a lot of chores on the weekends, and I go walk around the neighborhood. And I listen to podcasts all the time. Total nerd. so history of Japan podcast. yeah, uh, for people for people that are interested in some of this stuff, um, I want to be deeper like to fill out their knowledge of Japanese history.
1: And especially if you want the straight history, none of this me mixing in. Like tinfoil hat paranoia with it, yeah. And, and
0: uh, and then Dan Carlin's hardcore history series, Supernova, is extremely mm. detailed, good military history. He just concluded that in the last like six months. Holy crap! So, yeah, those are my sources. I always like it that you do like a work side thing with your podcast, it's really cool.
1: So I thank you. Yeah, I felt like that was something. Well, for for instance, I know that like Dave Emery would always do that. And like I always felt like other podcasts, not like any of the ones we've talked about, like they could stand to do that a little better. But um yeah, that's something I've I appreciated when I listened to them. So like, yeah, for sure. Um I was gonna ask too, where can people find your well? where can they find your other podcast appearances and also your music?
0: Um, the farm I was kind of a regular for about a year and a half. Did the world in the league series, did a one on fourth generation warfare and mm-hmm. one on moral rearmament. And then one on the weird aspects of UFO culture as it relates to the far right politics. Yeah. Uh, really weird stuff. Um, and then uh, com. You, you can find my music. i got like three records out. I was tempted to do another one, but damn it, I got to finish this book. It's never going <laughs> to. So I'm going to get back to that now that I'm done cramming for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I did too, man. I, I read a ton of stuff in like the last like six weeks. Being like, all right, crash course. In, and all of this Japanese business and it all relates to my other
1: research so
0: it's not a bad thing
1: yeah no like it's crazy because I like I thought I was doing a lot of reading but like you've legitimately probably read more than me like on this stuff for sure like just crazy crazy
0: well I well this is gonna be on the internet forever so don't fuck it up you know you got <laughs> you better come with the, get your game on you know yeah <laughs> I don't want to look stupid forever. Thank you very much for having me on too, man.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much. Like you put in so much work. And I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. I'm not doing this
1: for a while. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> We should do yeah. something in the future, but like, yeah, for sure. We'll
0: <laughs> take a break. Uh, I'll hour. make a, I'll issue you a little challenge right here and you can put it on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, see if you make your way back around to it. The China lot. Uh. <laughs> you're right there you're right there such a such a, a fundamental part of post-war border politics and it's right there i mean kodama was hastily dismantling his heroin labs in taiwan at, at the end of the war while he still could <laughs> you know these ultranationalists were sending troops over after during the occupation to help uh prosecute the Chinese civil war. So it really is uh, very easily segwayed, And if you do that, if you do go into the China lobby stuff, I, I will volunteer to help you out. Because I think it's just worth, uh, it, it needs to be understood by more people.
1: Oh, man, no, I know that I probably will. And it's like, oh, geez, that's so much <laughs> more to learn. But then again, I know I love it. So it's like, okay. Yeah. But it's like, we're about to have a freaking Cold War with China. So it's like, okay, cool. You're trying to rope me into the future Cold War. <laughs>
0: uh, I hope I hope it's just a Cold War. Jeez. Well, yeah, seriously. One Russian, one Chinese, one of the other. I don't...
1: <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you again so much for doing this.
0: You're welcome, sir. Take care and God bless. Mm-hmm.
3: Stretched out, I parted the veil Like it was nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Stepped onto the shore, crossed the river at last Made my way around through the shadow cast. Where the night time meets the dark Where the arrow hits the mark Like it was nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Keep your shirt on, baby Hang on to your shoes we're striking distance Of some mystic kind of blue And take a chance on a trance Baby, that's how we do Hold it up to the wind And let it send it home to you Like it was nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Nothing at all Like it was nothing